This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Welcome to The Way I See It, the series in which we throw open the collection at MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and ask some of the sharpest creative minds of our time to choose a piece that thrills or excites them, provokes or maybe inspires them. And they'll be telling us why they see it the way they do. Today, it's the turn of artist, architect and designer, Neri Oxman. So I picked The Endless House by Frederick Kiesler, and I picked it for so many reasons, meaning, metaphor and the future. This is a story of how art and architecture meet biology and how one man stood against the onslaught of modernism's steely straight lines. It does get a little chilly, doesn't it? But that would be to preserve the artwork. Yeah, what do you mean, temperature control? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. This time I'm underground, accompanied by my sardonic producer Paul in MoMA's cavernous storage facility in the New York borough of Queens. If I'm honest, this place is starting to feel like a second home. A lovely second home, albeit a touch on the cold side, with lots of great art on the walls. And we're here because I'm hoping to get some sort of grip on the exciting but elusive subject of this episode. A far-sighted, nebulous, shape-shifting architectural project that was never built, but still obsessed the visionary genius behind it for four decades. Maybe we could turn these around just so you could put this down and this up. How would that work? Flip it over. To ease myself into things, I've asked Pamela Popeson and Pedro Cruz, just two of MoMA's many art handlers, if I can begin by seeing a supposedly simple example of this Austrian-born architect, designer, artist and, why not, philosopher's quixotic work. What would we call them? Stools? Pedestals? Sideboards? Multi-purpose pieces of furniture. Mm. Well, that does the job. That perennial favourite of 20th century designers, the modern chair. Or in this case, two chairs. But as I'm about to discover, even his chairs are unconventional, a little bit bonkers, and about as graspable as mercury. They're really shape-shifting, curvaceous, undulating forms. I think lots of people, when they talk about mid-century modern art, they, they talk about biomorphic forms, these sort of strange, gloopy, curvaceous, undulating, organic-seeming shapes that obsessed all sorts of artists, many of them associated with surrealism in the middle years of the 20th century. And Frederick Kiesler, undoubtedly, was one of them. Orientation, they look exactly alike, which is really curious because yeah. you didn't really expect that, did you? To be honest, they looked like they were related, but two completely different, I would have said, sculptures. I wouldn't have actually thought these were items of furniture at all. They're really not conventional chairs in any sense. So Frederick Kiesler was not conventional in any sense as well, so that makes sense. There's a lovely quote where he talked about his seats. He said, the seats were a kind of wave which curved down, surged up and fell once more, thus forming an object without beginning or end. That no beginning, no end relates to perhaps a much more famous project that he created, which is known as The Endless House. Aha! At last! Yes, thank you for bearing with me, because having followed a fittingly Kiesler-esque, circuitous, windy route into this episode, I finally arrived at our destination and today's subject. His free-form, ever-evolving vision for what he called... An endless house. 
I picked it because it is a work of art that is also a manifesto. It's Mad Max and at the same time it could be the Flintstones or it, it could totally be the future. Is Flintstone <laughs> the equally unconventional and brilliant designer and MIT professor Neri Oxman, together with MoMA curator Paola Antonelli. Now earlier I called Kiesler a visionary genius. Well, the word visionary might have been coined to describe Oxman, who runs the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Media Lab, a testbed for cutting-edge technologies, and I mean really cutting-edge technologies, where, with a diverse team, she researches and proposes radical interdisciplinary ideas that draw upon and merge everything from, I don't know, computational design, fashion and 3D printing to something called synthetic biology. I believe the project... The original sketches and drawings were presented in Vienna in 1924, and the project carried on for 40 years, but was never built. Never built? Hang on. In what sense, then, does Kiesler's Endless House even exist? Well, if you go online and search MoMA's collection, anyone can do it, by typing in Frederick Kiesler, you'll see all sorts of things associated with the Endless House project. Sketches, letters... Pictures of ceramic models from the 50s envisioning how particular elements of the endless house would look. The picture I'm looking at now, it seems to consist of maybe five, six chambers. Each of them seems squishy, sort of egg-like, womb-like, and they seem to be all connected. It would feel like you were entering some enormous digestive tract of a giant or something. Biomorphic, squishy, undulating, intestinal. Just some of the language used so far, admittedly mainly by me, to describe Kiesler's work. If I had to pick just one word, though, to evoke his aesthetic, I think I'd go for gloopy. Yes, gloopy. At least, that's my first impression of Kiesler's style. But I concede that maybe gloopy isn't the most precise of terms. So I wonder if Neri Oxman and Paola Antonelli can do any better. Ooh, it's so interesting to try and describe the endless house, huh? I mean, the model itself is beautiful, but I think it's, it's the concept. It really is a house that does not have beginnings and ends of walls and of rooms, right? Exactly. That's really what it is. And one of the choices that Kiesler has made, which I relate so much to, was to use a single material for the entire house. It was designed to be entirely constructed of concrete over mesh. But if you have to describe it more, it's like all this bulbous, like, like a tuberous, it's like a blob with a many blob. with many excretions. It's a little bit the way you would imagine a house in a science fiction movie, but not one of those gleaming sci-fi from the 1930s and 40s where everything is glass and white. No, this is really tuberous, right? Paula is absolutely right. Kiesler's Endless House does have a sci-fi vibe. It's what residential housing might look like if developers ever colonised Mars. And now that this not-at-all-off-putting image of a tuberous blob with many excretions is lodged irrevocably in your mind, I think it's time to find out what made Neri pick the Endless House. Well, I grew up in a home filled with architectural books and stories. Both of my parents are architects. And so I was introduced to this work very early on by my father. And the fact that the project embodies so many questions about architecture, about what is place, how do you define place materially, physically, psychologically? The open-endedness of Kiesler's Endless House is, I suspect, 
precisely what Neri finds so alluring about it. Kiesler was also a contrarian, and I get the feeling Neri admires that too. After all, here was this idiosyncratic figure, a professor of architecture at Columbia University in New York, who resisted the standard approaches of modern architecture, all steel and glass, straight lines and right angles, by proposing an alternative vision for how humans could interact with the constructed spaces that surround them. He was this rebel in the room. When he presented this work, it was Rauschenberg who so admired this work, and the architects actually didn't. I mean, he was criticised for The Endless House and also for criticising the modern movement itself. This has nothing to do with modernism. It is almost as if it were made by some primordial creature. Now, it's worth concentrating at this point because... Neri is about to explain the brilliance of the ideas underpinning the endless house, which still resonate today. He called the house biomorphic, that looks deeper beyond the metaphor, beyond something looking organic to something that functions as organic or behaves as organic. It is not rectilinear, it is blobby, it is continuous. Intestinal. Intestinal! See? It isn't only me comparing the endless house to the digestive tract. Yes, it is reminiscent of organic form, but is it reminiscent of organic function? Does it behave in the way, for example, it exchanges energy or the way in which it mediates between light and heat in the interior spaces? How are these environmental elements of the design, how do those get integrated? And I think... Which is something that you're working on right now. Exactly, which is largely known or has been largely known since a couple of decades as performance-based design. Design that is not only informed by form or function, but also by performance. Environmental performance, structural performance, even socio-psychological performance, etc., Okay, things may be starting to sound a little bit abstract and theoretical. I guess Neri's saying that the appearance of the endless house isn't unusual in a superficial, flashy, look at me, I'm so original kind of way. Instead, its form was dictated not just by its intended function as a domestic living space for a single family, but also by how that space was meant to perform. The Endless House was, Kiesler said, meant to be a living organism and not just an arrangement of dead material. I also read somewhere that Kiesler came out with this bold statement, upending the classic modernist saying that a building's function should determine its form. Form does not follow function, Kiesler said. Function follows vision. Vision follows reality. It's true, Kiesler's distinctive vision remains highly influential. The Endless House still actively informs Neri's own practice and interdisciplinary approach. I believe we are the first architectural studio slash research lab to have designed our own BL2 wet lab from scratch. Hold up. BL2 wet lab. Let's just see if Google can help us. OK. A wet lab or experimental laboratory where hazardous or wet chemicals and tissues may be handled which conforms to biosafety level two. Um, Degree two is what, bacteria? Degree two allows us to use tissues, including human tissue and human cells, by the way. (laughs) So mammals, not only microorganisms and bacteria. Hang on, weren't we just talking a moment ago about architecture? Apparently, Neri still is. So the ability to use living cells 
whether it is via microorganisms, bacteria, human or other types of tissues, this allows us to incorporate functionalities that were never before available inside a product or a building. And one example of this is our most recent project where we incorporate melanin, the pigment that we have in our skins that gives us you know, the color of our skins, incorporating melanin inside glass in order to be able to control or mediate between heat and light and the interior environment. So you literally build a first-of-its-kind biological skin in an architectural facade. We've come a long way from MoMA's chilly stores, where I was trying to make sense of Kiesler's bewildering furniture at the start. But melanin glass... By the way, surely the glazing of choice for the biomorphic endless house, which Kiesler, after all, said was meant to be endless like the human body, that's exactly the sort of far-out, super-smart idea which I'm convinced Kiesler would have relished if only the science and technology of his day had made such a thing conceivable. Kiesler treated architecture and design at large as an operatic art form that brought together, in his case, sculpture and painting and furniture, sort of a harmonic environment. And in our case, in today's day and age, it's not only about the magic of the art around us, but also about how science contributes to how we live and how we interact with our physical and immaterial environment. You've been listening to The Way I See It with me, Alistair Souk. You can hear more episodes from this series by searching for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. From the Manhattan to the Martini to the Negroni, cocktails and spirits have never been more popular than they are today. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast's half-full editor. And I'm David Wandrich, the Daily Beast's senior drinks columnist. And we're the hosts of the podcast Life Behind Bars, which won the 2018 Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Award for the world's best drinks podcast. Yes, we do get paid to drink for a living. So shake up a drink and join us for a mix of engaging stories and historical facts about the greatest bartenders and the greatest drinks of all time. Cheers. Cheers. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts.